Hello, and welcome to the Reconomy podcast from First American. This new podcast will feature economic insights for real estate professionals and anyone interested in real estate, housing, affordability, and related economic issues. That's the Reconomy. Now, don't worry, you won't need an advanced degree in mathematics or economics to appreciate these insights. Because First American's Chief Economist, Mark Fleming, and Deputy Chief Economist, Odette Kushi are going to break it down for us in a very conversational style. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast or bookmark this link so you can find your way back here for future episodes. And now your hosts, Odetta and Mark. Welcome to Reconomy, a podcast from First American where we discuss economic issues that impact real estate, housing, and affordability. I'm Odetta Kushi, Deputy Chief Economist at First American, and today I will be the one asking the questions. The one answering them is none other than First American Chief Economist, Dr. Mark Fleming. Mark's been in the industry for quite some time. Hi, Mark. Hey, Odetta. How are you? I'm doing well today. So let's just get started. Uh, I once heard that economics is the painful elaboration of the obvious. And so today we'll be talking about what might seem like the obvious, and those are the supply and demand dynamics driving real estate. But first, I wanted to ask Mark how he would differentiate the housing market in comparison to, say, the market for cars. Uh, that's a great question, Odette. I mean, the, the, there's big distinctions between the housing market and markets as we traditionally try to um, understand them or you know study them in economics. And um, there's a couple of big defining differences. One is that um, in a normal market like cars or iPhones or anything else, the supplier is a distinctly different individual than the demander. And so the, the supply and demand decisions are made by two distinctly different actors. But as we know, in the housing market, the majority of home sales are actually existing homeowners and they're both making the supply and the demand, the sell and the buy decision contemporaneously. So that's factor number one. The second one is, unlike iPhones and you know cars, there's you know this is a what we refer to as a heterogeneous good. Every house is different, and when it comes to housing, I'm looking for a certain preference. It's a style I like, a size I like, and so this this good that is very very diversified and different means I can't just buy any home. I'm looking to buy a certain kind of home or specific home. Yeah, although you could argue these days you have much less choice, and so. You know, we, we take what we can get nowadays. Well, there is that, but that, that's actually part of the problem we'll probably talk about a little bit later is a lack of choice with a heterogeneous good actually sort of freezes up the market because for me as an existing homeowner, I already have one, so I'm trying to find something that I actually like better than what I have now. And if there's fewer options out there, I might choose not to sell at all. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but you've made a couple of good examples. So the housing market is very distinct, but it is similar to two things, and that is the market for jewelry and that for artwork. Can you explain that a little bit, why the housing market is similar to those two things? Sure. So the first reason why all three are roughly the same is this idea of a heterogeneous good. Every piece of art is different. Every piece of unique, you know, uh, um, auctionable jewelry is unique and different. So it's that heterogeneous good concept. But then in addition, all three markets have a hallmark of what we refer to as thinly traded. That is, you know, we don't see a lot of transactions. Uh, by comparison, take, you know, a stock on the stock market traded hundreds of thousands of times a day. A home trade right now, once every 10 years. And so 
you the hallmark of all three is heterogeneous, thinly traded good. And what that means to us as economists is, you know, price revelation is much more difficult when the good doesn't trade very often. Again, compare that to the stock market. It's very easy to know what the going price of a Google share is. It's a lot harder to figure out what the going price of a heterogeneous, weirdly unique, you know, geodesic dome in the middle of Idaho is that never sells. That's a really great point. And I think um, diving into kind of the, the price revelation and, and prices in general, I wanted to touch on something that you said earlier, which is why supply and demand is different in the housing market. And, you know, this is really what differentiates the housing market. And it brings us to the concept of the prisoner's dilemma, right? And the prisoner's dilemma, as I know it, is what we learned in game theory in graduate school, which is really a paradox where two individuals are acting in their own self-interest and that does not produce the optimal outcome. So what does that mean for us in the housing market and how does it really tie into this idea of uh, the seller being the same as the um, as the buyer in the housing market? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, we love game theory and behavioral economics, so we look for all kinds of opportunities to try and like tie what we learned in graduate school to this weird market called housing that nobody <laughs> seems to be able to understand and it doesn't fit with any of the paradigms that we talk about. But here, let's try it anyway. So the prisoner's dilemma. Also ironic in the sense that uh, we often refer to your home as your castle. Well, in this case, it's turning into the dungeon that's your prison. I don't know, but you're imprisoned yes, in your home. You're imprisoned in your home. Yeah, the it's that supplier and demander concept that you're one and the same person, and it's a heterogeneous good. So in a normal, well-functioning market, I make my sale decision to provide the home for sale knowing that there's going to be lots of inventory out there for me to choose from to find that, you know, next that home that I really want to buy. So lots of inventory, willingness to sell, knowing I have to buy. And if we have, if everybody feels that same way, of course, the act of selling is providing that inventory and the act of buying is, you know, hoping that there's other people out there also listing their homes for sale. So if everyone's sort of doing this, you have Lots of turnover, higher inventory, I can find something to buy, you buy my home, I buy your home, we're all happy. That's the idealized situation. But what if one of us decides to say, oh, I'm not sure I can find a home to buy, and you withdraw from the market, so you don't list your home for sale, therefore you, that inventory isn't there, and you know, you're not going to go out and buy. Well, that means the person who does take the chance of listing their home for sale now has fewer options. And if you take this to the extreme, the prisoner's dilemma is, it's actually in my best interest. If I don't trust that everybody else is gonna do it, I'm better off not doing it. And if we all make that individual decision, I'm not doing it because I don't trust others will, we get no inventory, no sales, nothing to choose from, and sort of this prisoner's dilemma, I'm trapped in the dungeon of my castle. And, you know, the no inventory is exactly what we're seeing today. But I think that really begs this natural question of why are people staying in their homes? I mean, why aren't people selling at this time? We have record low mortgage rates, right? So you would think that that would incentivize people to buy a home. But actually, there's kind of a duality to the record low mortgage rates, right? Right. So if you're a first time buyer and you're trying to buy a home, Low mortgage rates are great. They increase your house buying power. They allow you to hopefully bid for that rarely available home against everybody else out there, right? If you're an existing homeowner 
in today's environment and you've just locked in what a 2.9 or a 3% 30-year fixed rate mortgage. I mean, you and I talk about this all the time. We would never have thought that mortgage rates would ever be this low. I locked no. that rate in and now the problem is I have a cheap cost of ownership, right? My mortgage payment per month is so low because of this low mortgage rate. If we fast forward a year or two and rates are a little bit higher, then there's a built-in penalty. I would sell my home, lose that low rate, have to buy another home at a higher mortgage rate. And even if it was the proverbially same home, it would cost me more per month. So there's this financial lock-in effect that we talk about that keeping rates so low, and it doesn't even have to be that rates go up higher, it's just that they stay where they are. What's my incentive to be able to buy more home if my mortgage rate isn't gonna change or is actually higher than mine? And so existing homeowners are withdrawing from the market because they're saying, hey, I've got my low rate, I've got my house that I like, um, you know, rather than trying to find something to buy that I can't when there's no inventory, I'm gonna keep the mortgage, I'm not going to do a renovation and fix the kitchen or spend more time at Home Depot, things like that instead. And I think we're seeing exactly that. And there's also, of course, the fact that there's a cost associated with moving um, that I think we lose sight of sometimes. Sure, mortgage rates could remain the same, but if you were to move, there's a cost associated to that. So rather than do that, again, stay in your home, renovate your kitchen, add a bathroom. Um, and I think that's that's largely what we're seeing in the market. But you brought up house buying power, and this is something that we bring up all of the time. Uh, but I think it's important to define what it is and what it means for affordability. There's a couple um, points to affordability that people miss all the time, no matter how many times we hit them over the head with it, right? This is our soapbox, right? Yeah. Uh, the concept of what matters in terms of whether a home is affordable or not. And, you know, the, the most traditional ways that people look at it as well, if house prices are rising really quickly, that means they're unaffordable. Uh, could be the case, but it's not necessarily the case. What if it's really low house prices and they're rising quickly, they're still affordable. Another way that people often look at it is they compare it to income. And so if my income's growing at say 2% and but house prices are growing at 6% then clearly you know you're losing affordability because your income pace of growth is not keeping up with your house pipe house price growth but you know that applies when you're buying gallons of milk at the grocery store or gas at the gas station if my income is not going up as fast as the price of those sorts of things then sure i can afford to buy less milk this is this inflation you know uh, the price I can, my real purchasing power is lower. But we buy milk without a loan. We buy homes with a loan. And when you take into account the interest rate, it's not just about has my income grown, it's how much can I afford to borrow as a function of those interest rates. And what happens is given any level of income, if interest rates go down, which they have, um, then your purchasing power goes up even if your income stays the same. So we like to measure this combination of income and interest rates to try and get a sense for how is house buying power as a function of those two things really changing. And what do we find? 
Well, we, we adjust the house price index, the nominal house price index that you would typically see on the news, and you see that that continues to grow, 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 and you adjust that for house buying power, you actually find that housing is a lot more affordable than you may think. And we recently actually just looked at this by market by market, and we found that in the majority of our markets, I think there was only three where this is not the case, house buying power exceeded that of the median sale price of the home. And we, when you break it down, the main reason for that is really mortgage rates. Exactly right. what you said before, cheap, cheap, cheap financing. Cheap financing. And, you know, the unfortunate truth is I think those three markets are in California all, all right? All in California. <laughs> yeah. so Every single time. Every single time. It, the truth is this is where you have to say the common in real estate, you know, real estate, it's all about local, location, local, local. Location, location. Yes, exactly. exactly. But you know these dynamics, the the rates, the nominal house prices, and the incomes. These are all metrics that we're watching because they can change, and it's really such an intricate dance between the three. And what we're really watching right now is household income, right? It's not a sure thing that we're going to see household incomes continue to rise. And in conjunction with faster nominal house price appreciation, we don't know what that spells out for affordability. Can you talk about that a little bit? This is this is quite interesting, particularly given the economic environment, the health environment that we're in today. Um, and it's always been the case with recessions that the housing market, uh, maybe we should have talked about this as another anomalous aspect of the housing market, is generally there's a tailwind that is created in the housing market in time of recession because the Federal Reserve reduces rates, that lowers mortgage rates, and, and that increases house buying power. So, you know, in recessionary times, we usually get some sort of a benefit on the rate side by boosted house buying power. But to your point, obviously in today's environment, our big concern is income, 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 because it doesn't matter what the mortgage rate is, if you don't have a job and you don't have a stream of income, then you know paying that mortgage is of course very difficult. Um, and that dynamic is what's the race between those two? We've seen a clear benefit from mortgage rates we know or expect that the there'll be a you know a slowdown in in uh, income growth and that will reduce house buying power. The real question is, is it enough to reverse affordability re relative to house prices? It could be because, as we said, house prices are growing quite quickly. With that low inventory, whoever is out there trying to buy a home is bidding the prices up, and so house price growth is going quite quickly right now. And while we're still nationally affordable and in most markets affordable, that is not to say that that will remain the same as we go into the next year. That's a great point. And I think it's it's worth mentioning why we've had um, such growth in the housing market despite this economic decline. And you and I have both looked at this and what we've really found is a bifurcation in this labor market, market decline. We've found that it's been younger renter households that have really been disproportionately hurt by this economic downturn, whereas potential home buyers or homeowners have not been as impacted by the types of industries that have been hurt in this economic decline. So those industries, leisure, hospitality, uh, lower wage industries typically employ younger workers um, and younger, less educated uh, workers are, are less likely to be homeowners. Is that what you're seeing? 
Yeah, they're, they're less likely to be potential homeowners. These are renters who were going to be renting. They weren't thinking about buying a home necessarily, you know, leading into this pandemic. And so the people who were still are clearly from looking at the data, we clearly see there's tons of first time home buyer demand out there. But we're going to get inside the weeds a little bit on this one with such low inventories. Uh, you know, what's the statistic of the average amount of time a home stays on the market right now? Less I think than it's 30 days. 30 day, less than 30 days right now. Yeah. So what we think is actually happening is because we see a fair amount of sales activity. It's all ex these existing homeowners are sort of trading amongst themselves. It's kind of like the musical chairs thing going on. We're all swapping chairs with each other, trying to find that optimal, you know, housing utility from the from the you know the different houses because we can with these low rates. But we're leaving that first-time home buyer um, high and dry out of the market. Yeah, and another point to that is the fact that in the last existing home sales report, we found that most of the sales were happening in the middle to high tier. And so there's a bunch of existing homeowners who have benefited from this increase in house price appreciation. They have all of this equity. And to your point, they're playing the housing musical chairs. They're swapping homes with each other, which, again, leaves that first time home buyer out in, in the cold. Um, and, and you mentioned... You mentioned, uh, you know, who's being impacted economically, income-wise, by the pandemic. You know, there's a strong difference between the odds of being unemployed, um, even historically, and we believe even more so now, based upon whether or not you're a homeowner versus a renter. Historically, about four and a half percentage point difference in the unemployment rate between renters and owners. That is a, a big difference. And to your point, because this is a health-driven services industry um, recession, we find that that gap has actually widened in this economic downturn. And so it helps to explain why we've seen housing or the purchase market experience this V-shaped recovery, despite the fact that we're seeing one of the worst labor market um, declines in the history of the United States. But that still kind of brings us to what are the dynamics that we're seeing and what do we anticipate going forward? And we've touched on some of these, but specifically on the demand side, we have extremely low mortgage rates, historically low mortgage rates before three, below 3%. But then we also have a demographic tailwind. And I know I like to talk about this a lot because I am a millennial myself, but you mm -hmm. have this, this massive generational cohort that's aging into their home prime home buying years a little bit later in life than their generational predecessors. But we're seeing them start to age into their prime home buying years and we're seeing them enter the market and really drive home ownership growth. We don't anticipate that to go away, right? No, and we've had, uh, well, how long have we been talking about you're wanting to buy a home as a millennial? Three years now? At least, at least. Yes, at least. Um, it, it started a few years ago. We clearly saw it in the, in the household formation data that people were, you know, who were largely renting because they were in their 20s, had no desire to be homeowners. Who would when you're in your 20s, single, not married, no kids? You're not going to live in the suburbs. But, you know, everybody eventually comes around, forms family, starts to do those things. And that behavior changes started a couple of years ago. As you said, we're of it and we have a tailwind for at least another five years of that. The problem, though, is great demographic story as it relates to housing. Not going to go away, but we have just not built enough homes. And this isn't just 
homes for sale. This is rental homes. This is, you know, roofs over people's heads. We have not built enough homes over the last decade to keep up with the increased number of households who still want shelter. And, you know, in most of America, you know, people like to have a roof over their head. Yeah, I would say so. And so the increase in household formation, which we can anticipate as millennials continue to form households, in addition to low mortgage rates, which we anticipate to see for the foreseeable future, we don't anticipate those mortgage rates to rise anytime soon. And then you have this dynamic of very, very limited supply of homes available for sale. What does that mean for the next couple of months? Well, the next couple of months, I think it's possible, possible that we could have a better year for home sales in, 29, in 2020, even with the pandemic, um, than we had in 2019, which was one of our best years in the last decade. Uh, so, you know, while the housing market, as you said, as a V-shaped reco recovery has, you know, exhibited a great degree of immunity yeah. to the virus and the economic fallout of it, um, we and that might that might continue uh, through the end of the year. In fact, in terms of mortgage purchase applications, we're ahead of schedule towards the end of the year relative to last. But, you know, we have to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, this economic recession and this recovery that is now slowing down, um, you know, I don't think that we can safely say the housing market can remain fully immune. Uh, we have to be cognizant of the risk that uh, as with viral immunity that potentially goes away, you know, we might see the impact of those slowing incomes on both the existing homeowners and definitely those first-time home buyers um, as the economic recovery slows down, which most are expecting it will do going into next year. So we remain cautiously optimistic. We've yes. got tailwinds on our side, demographics, mortgage rates, but of course, headwinds remain. Uh, mostly, it's that lack of available inventory of homes for sale, but of course, also uh, potentially the, the labor market decline uh, worsening, or at least the recovery slowing. And so those are all things that we'll kind of keep our eye on. But it's also worth mentioning that the current dynamics will, will probably result in, in house price appreciation, at least for the next couple of months, as we don't anticipate these dynamics to go away, right? Right. These are these are great problems to have. Think about we're struggling with uh, you know lack of supply, you know lack of demand. Uh, lack of demand is a much bigger issue. Lack of supply for a good that um, you can't outsource and everybody needs it. And while it comes and goes, and there are good years and less good years and sometimes bad years. I mean, I. I I have, I was around during the great financial crisis and suffered through, you know, huge amounts of negative equity and everything else. Um, you know, those fundamentals are in housing really help drive things. Everybody needs it and it can't be outsourced. That's a really great point. And so we hope that this conversation demystified some of the fundamentals of the housing market. And we'll be back next month for another episode. And maybe we'll tackle that great financial crisis and why, you know, this time it's a little bit different than then. So, Mark, thank you so much for all your insights today. And we hope that everyone stays healthy out there.